I'm dysfunctional, you're dysfunctional. It's a book title from a number of years ago. I don't remember a lot about the book, but I remember the title, and I remember the basic gist of the book, I'm dysfunctional, you're dysfunctional. And it was basically poking fun at pop psychology, trying to never end with blame shifting, and I am the way I am because I'm dysfunctional, and that's what you need to understand about me. And just made a profound point. I don't think it was a Christian book. It was just kind of even making fun of, of Christian pop psychology. And uh, the title stuck with me because it's a pretty good title. It's a pretty good title for life and a pretty good description of kind of the life we live. Um, hello, my name is Pat and I have a problem. You know, I, I am dysfunctional. Yeah, thank you. I am dysfunctional and you're dysfunctional. Uh, I lead a dysfunctional family. I have dysfunctional children. I have a dysfunctional wife who has a dysfunctional husband. I'm a dysfunctional pastor. And, and on we can go, and we kind of laugh about it, but the reality is our world is broken. Our world is very, very broken, and there is pain, and there is suffering, and there is death, and there is confusion, and there is dysfunction all over the place. And every single one of us... Sometimes some very sophisticatedly, sometimes very simply, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. Every single one of us is trying to bring about resolution. We're trying to, to make some sense of this. We're trying to, 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 to bring some, some stability. We're, we're seeking after, we're groping after genuine meaning something that's going to last, something that will give us stability, something we can hang on to, some kind of identity that we can have. Everybody's doing it. If you sit around and watch and observe what people are into, what people do, how people spend their money, how they spend their time, how they don't spend their time, and you see we're, we're a world filled with people looking for resolution because we want some kind of fixing to this brokenness, right? The great thing about King Solomon, the great thing about Ecclesiastes, if you haven't already turned there, I suppose that would be a good idea. This is introduction to Ecclesiastes 3 and 4. The great thing about Solomon is he, he, he spares no expense, if you will. He, he spares no effort looking under every rock and every, in every corner, looking for this fix, looking for lasting, genuine meaning, looking for resolve. And that's the great thing about Solomon. He's a, a man famous for his mind, for his power, for his abilities. And so He's helping us to search high and low for that resolve. That's the great thing about Solomon. That's the great thing about Ecclesiastes. The not so great and awful thing about Ecclesiastes is he never finds it. Never is too strong of a word. Don't never say always and never, that kind of thing. At the very, very, very end, he does. And, 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 he saves it for then. But along the way, from chapter 1, verse 2, and then chapter, I think it's chapter 12, verse 8. Yes, it just repeats it. Chapter 1, verse 2, vanity of vanity. Everything is vanity. We could translate that meaninglessness, meaninglessness. Everything is meaningless. Um, futility, futility. Everything is futile. Book ending it with chapter 12, verse 8. And I think it's about 30 times in between. That haunting, eerie refrain, meaninglessness, meaninglessness. There is no resolve. There is no solution. This is just how it is. Despair, despair. I keep writing this word in my sermon notes in this Ecclesiastes series. Ugh! <laughs> That's the theme of Ecclesiastes for me. You know, it's just so heavy and burdened. You just want to go, ugh! There's no resolution. Now we do see at the end, the resolution is, for me to paraphrase and put it in my own words, a true, a genuine knowledge of God. If you have that lens through which you can see everything in your life and everything in the world, then and only then you can have true meaning, you can have stability, you can have fulfillment, you can have resolution. And so it's... it's it's a wonderful setup to get us there. 
but it's also an awful, awful setup to get us there because it really is dark. Uh, it really is um, grim. But God in His perfect wisdom has us walk through the grimness. I have discovered, by the way, I'm trying to go as fast as I can in Ecclesiastes. <laughs> I thought we'll do a chapter a week and I'm thinking that was a really bad idea. Um, I, I'm beginning to see the wisdom of people who write books on Ecclesiastes that contain four chapters. Okay. That seems to be just about enough for you to go, okay, let's move on to something else. I'm going to do 1 Corinthians 13 next week and talk about love uh, or something. I mean, it's just tough going. Um, and today will be no different. Um, there are six answers that are non-answers that we see three, in 316 to 416. Six answers to life's big questions about significance that are, end up being non-answers. They fail us. They're really five, but he repeats one of them. And so I'm just numbering them six to try to avoid some confusion. So six answers that don't really answer, that don't really come through for us. And by the way, just one other thing as we go. One thing I'm trying to do, maybe working through the whole book, Although, if I live long enough to ever do Ecclesiastes again, I'll do it in four weeks, maybe one. Um, <laughs> but one thing I am trying to do and I am committed to doing is um, not only to preaching the message of Ecclesiastes, but to try to help along the way, if I can, to help you read Ecclesiastes maybe better. I, I, one of my goals in preaching is to have you go home and read your Bible and have it make more sense. Um, and so, to, to read it better. And just so you know, Ecclesiastes is hard to interpret. There's all kinds of debate. And I think most of the Bible, quite honestly, is easy to interpret. Um, Ecclesiastes isn't. And so I just want to make sure you know that. And I'm not pretending like it's easy. Um, in my opinion, the best angle, um, and I found this helpful from other writers and people who've gone before us, I think the best way to take Ecclesiastes is remember the big picture. And if you read Ecclesiastes, big picture, I think it's going to make more sense. Remember the forest, okay? Now, the forest is dark. Um, some of the trees along the way look pretty decent. But before you know it, then the book doesn't make sense. If it's just filled with these principles and practical, good wisdom pieces for life, it doesn't really make sense because in the end, he says, and throughout, it's all vanity. So remember the big picture is bookend, bookend, vanity of vanities, you're going to see some high points along the way, but in the end, it's dark and you need a true knowledge of God. So read bigger sections than smaller sections, and I think it'll make more sense to you. Oh, and by the way, we're going to end on a positive note today. <laughs> okay? We're going to end in John 8, and we're going to be so ready for John 8. It's going to be awesome. Okay, So we are headed there. We'll get a little glimpse of, of hope along the way, but we will end in John 8, and I can't wait for John 8. Okay, So hang in there. Okay, you can, you can do the darkness before the light. Um, let's look at this first question that doesn't really give us an answer. The first answer that's not an answer, I should say, and that's government. That's government, uh, specifically talking about the law. Look at chapter 3, verse 16, where the writer says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, and let me rude you, rudely interrupt and say, as if to say, that is where we can find a transcendent truth. That's where we can find something that's above it all, because that's where they decide who's right and who's wrong. And if there's anything that's trustworthy, you can count on, you can, you can really rely upon, it's the law. It's the governing authorities. And he says, even there was wickedness. It's meant to take us kind of off guard and, and kind of stagger our minds. Even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, which is the, another way of saying justice, even there was wickedness. So he says it twice. Ah! And, and I, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I don't play one on television. I don't pretend to be one. Uh, I think I, I took two years of Hebrew, and that's about enough to learn the alphabet, by the way. Uh, <laughs> maybe a little bit more. But, but Hebrew scholars do tell us that even the syntax and the way this, this sentence is put together is, is purposely bad. It's purposely choppy. It's not that Solomon doesn't have the ability to write. He has the ability to write. But this on purpose has us, has us bothered and troubled and, and this seems so wrong. 
You're supposed to be able to go to the, the, the court of law and have them decide things fairly. There's at least some kind of transcendent, ultimate truth reality. And he says, even there, it's no. It's no. And most of you who are in this room who are adults, you know, we, we, we think we know this at least all too well. Think back to when you're young, though. Think, think back even a little bit further when, when, you, when you thought adults were good <laughs> and, and, and all, all big people were good and always had your best interest in mind and, um, and then you grow up a little bit and you realize that's not the case. And then you grow up a little bit more and you learn the principles about how government works and how the, the law works and, and you learn those things when you're in elementary school, young, young, and then you begin to become more informed and you too understand that even in the best kind of culture and situation, it's still a broken world. We are still dysfunctional and even the governing authorities are dysfunctional. So it's not where you go. It's government and, and the law is not a good ultimate where you can trust them in everything. Sometimes this becomes more pronounced when you go to another culture. Certain other cultures you go and you see this just sort of ugly in your face kind of compromise and injustice and, and, and it makes you appreciate what you have, but you know that that's flawed too. So Solomon is, is saying, even there, it's not a transcendent, ultimate kind of good. Before we move on, what's cool, good word to use, what, what, what's cool to see because we do have more information and we're not left in the dark completely and, and we know more as Christians and we have that lens. We, we at least have the lens to see that government is actually from God and, and God has given us governing authorities to function and carry out a certain purpose. We could talk about Romans 13 and see the benefits there. Even though it's broken, we can do that. So he's not, I don't think our intent is, we're not just throw authority and, and, and law under the bus. That's not the case, but, but it's, it's not ultimate good. It's not ultimate dependability. The world is messed up. Let's move on now to a second answer that doesn't really deliver when it comes to something that you can really count on, and that's to make sense of the world, and that's death. Death. He's still, he's still on this, this uh, justice uh, kick, if you will. And carrying that into verse 17, he says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. And for there is a time for every matter and for every work. That right there is a good tree. Okay, We're going to look at the forest, but that is one good tree. He's, he's making a good statement. And he's saying, well, you know what? At least what we can count on is... All of those people, even who are corrupt, are going to die one day and they're going to stand before God and then there's going to be justice. And we would say, that's right. It seems that Solomon is writing from a perspective of a wise person without special revelation. But you can still come to that kind of conclusion even without special revelation. You could say, you know what? I think this corruption that's taking place that I can even see happening in the best of places is eventually going to be solved because one day everybody dies and is going to have to answer to God. You don't even really need the Bible to come to that kind of conclusion. People say that who are not Christians. So that's, that's insightful. That's a good statement. Death is a solution in one sense, at least tentatively for this writer. But let's keep reading. Verse 18 says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. They're going to be humbled someday. This human injustice business, they're going to they're gonna die. They're going to they're gonna stand before God and, and they're going to be humbled one day. I, I kind of like the sound of death bringing, bringing resolve to, to my problems in life is where Solomon is going. But then look at verse 19. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. I wrote in my margin, true enough. They all have, but keep reading then, they all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. Now, that last statement isn't altogether true. 
if you have a biblical worldview, which he's trying to operate without one. But you and I go, you know, we're actually different from animals. We know that we're made in the image of God. Genesis tells us so. New Testament tells us so too. But you see where he's going. He started with injustice and says, you know, eventually God's going to take care of it because people are going to die. Just like the animals, they're going to die. And we're no different from the animals. Maybe now we're about ready to see death as maybe no real solution. Keep going. Verse 20, all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? Who knows? That's why he just said in verse 19, all is vanity. Where he was hopeful for a while that, you know what, God is going to bring about ultimate justice. Now he's in, because people are, you know, going to stand before God. Now he seems to be shifting and saying, I don't even know if that's true. I don't even know if I can count on that because it seems to me that people are the same as animals. And how would we know else uh, otherwise? Because in verse 20, he does, in fact, ask that rhetorical question. Who knows? Who really knows about what happen after, happens after you die? I was thinking maybe that was the solution. And now I'm going, well, who knows? I think is the tenor of what he's getting at. That's not really the solution. I can't really count on that either. Solomon is going to be the rude guy who when he hears someone say, well, at least they're in a better place. Who's going to say, well, how do you know that? Where did you hear that? Well, at least we know they're not suffering anymore. How do you know that? Who knows what happens when you die? Well, justice will one day come. How do you know that? Futility of futilities. From, from the naked eyes perspective, when, when my loved one dies, it looks like the same thing that happens as when my pet dies. See, there's no Christian worldview. There's no special revelation. He's saying, if you want to try to find meaning in death and then comes judgment how, how do you come to that conclusion so he's filled with this this frustration and this turmoil and as he says all is vanity all is futile it's very defeatist vanity of vanities now i can't help i i can't help myself i can't say well then we'll wait till the end to come to this solution and i just have to say it <sighs> you know, let's just talk for a minute about what we do know. Because when, when the writer says, who knows? In frustration, who knows? And, and you want to say, I do. <laughs> Actually, I do because God has spoken to this matter. And not just in the New Testament, definitely with a big emphasis there, but he, he, you can go to Daniel 12, you can go to Isaiah. But, uh, but how about you saying, uh, I do, I do, I know. I know what happens in death. You can just jot down some passages that are favorites that answer this question. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14 are at the top of my list. Answering Solomon's question, who knows? Well, how about this? Verse 13 says, just have these words encourage you. But we do not want you to be uninformed. Ah, I like the parallel of words. Who knows? Where would we get that information? We do not want you to be uninformed. We don't want you, Christians, who have revelation from God in the fullness of Christ, we don't want you to say, who knows? We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, which is a nice way of saying those who've died. It's a euphemism that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That's what we know. How do we know that though? Because God has spoken to us, given us his revelation. 
in the fullness in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.14, knowing, who knows? Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. 2 Corinthians 1.9, God who raises the dead. 1 Corinthians 6.14, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And the list could go on. So in that sense, if you have revelation and the right lens through which you can see things in this broken, dysfunctional world, in that sense, you can say death is the solution. But only take it in a certain sense. Let's move on to another one. Another answer that doesn't really answer, and that's work. Now, we already talked about work. He's going to talk about it again and then again. So apparently this is a big one. Verse 22 says, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Get the flavor for it? If we, if we don't know how it's going to end, and he's saying, oh, but we don't know how it ends. Fido and Uncle Fred kind of look like they end the same. Who knows? If that's the case, who can bring him to see what will come after him? It seems virtuous to give your life to your work. In other words, give your life to the here and now. He did something similar earlier in Ecclesiastes. You know what? Just do pleasure. Enjoy life. Because who knows? That's one way of coping with vanity of vanities. Just have a good time. We'll return to work because he covers it again. But for now, we'll move past it and make the simple observation, whereas he's making the point that he's just bringing up work now. Let's just leave it at that. He's going to come back to it. Let's, Let's just move on to number four. The next answer that doesn't deliver when it comes to bringing resolution to this mixed up world is non-existence. Non-existence. This is where we dim the lights and it gets depressing. By the way, I've never been so depressed, I think, in my whole life as when I've been studying Ecclesiastes. I am so ready to be done with Ecclesiastes. (laughs) It's about up to here. Um, It's just dark stuff. And we know how it ends, but you're trying to really see the darkness so you can understand how it works and stop it already, you know? I'm so glad we're ending in John 8. Um, Let's go chapter 4, verse 1 and following. Again, I saw all the oppressions, all the mistreatments that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, the the tears of the mistreated. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. It's repulsive. It's grotesque. And you see it and I see it and he saw lots of it. And you see people repressed People mistreated, they're mistreated by powerful people, and so many times it seems like no one is doing anything about it. What kind of crazy, mixed up, jacked up world is this? And then you die. And there might not even be any justice, is where he's coming from. This is awful. And Solomon's solution is what's so dark to me, is in verse 2. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Man. Now we know better than that. But I still think there's some empathy to be felt. Because sometimes we forget about what we know and sometimes we find ourselves even feeling like this. You know, the world is so mixed up and is so messed up and, and you see these awful, horrible things. I think, you know, think bad things happen to me, but then I see what happens to other people. And you, you come to the conclusion sometimes, maybe if we're honest, be better off if they weren't alive. Be better off dead. 
Maybe death is the solution. It intensifies when it comes to gloominess in verse 3, I think. But better than both is he who has not yet been and, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And the world is such a cruel place, it would be better if you'd never been born. The miscarried baby that my wife didn't have is better off than me because at least it didn't have to experience this. You go, man. It's really dark. Not all the time, but sometimes if we're honest, we, we, we go to that dark kind of place. Even if we know better, by the way, that's one of the reasons why Ecclesiastes is a dark, dark of a book as it is. It does end up resonating with people who want some honesty and, and not just everything in a nice dress. It is helping us to see just how messed up our world can be. Broken world. Maybe death is the answer. Non-existence. I like the way the German fantasy writer Cornelia Funk described this. The world was a terrible place, cruel, pitiless, dark as a bad dream, not a good place to live. You see why she might be drawn to write fantasy. Now, the great thing is, you have a lens through which you can interpret the world around you, including the suffering and injustice. You do. I do. This dark book gets us ready for that. You know why bad things happen. You know there's a solution to the bad things. You know that the solution is already locked in stone. You know... That God even uses the turmoil and the trouble in your life as a spiritual growth agent in your life. But how do you know those things? You know those things because you have revelation. Because you have an interpretive grid. Because you have a lens from God. Because you have Christ Jesus, quite frankly, and ultimately to interpret the whole thing. And you can then make some sanctified sense out of this whole thing. You have an answer. Where he doesn't have an answer. And we want to we wanna get to that place where maybe we see the darkness and we love the, we love the answer. No, we don't just love the answer. We love the God behind the promise that gives us the answer. We know. We know that God is even causing all of these things. Somehow, though we don't know how, somehow His promise is in the midst of the brokenness. Somehow He's using these things and He does love us and He does care for us. He has adopted us into His family and He's using this brokenness to lead us somewhere. And ultimately that somewhere is perfect conformity into the image of His Son. Who's the perfect human being, by the way? He's going to glorify us. We know this. But by the way, I need you to tell me. Okay? I, I need reminders. I, I need gospel kinds of reminders. I need Romans 8 kinds of reminders. But, but just be nice to me when you do it. You know, In one sense, can we be honest and say, you know, I, I want to say if one more person in my life when something bad is going on puts a big smile on their face and says, you know, just remember Romans 8.28. Oh, it's so good. Just, oh, I know this horrible stuff. Just God is causing all things to work together for good. <laughs> and I want to grab him by the throat and go, stop it. You can keep it. 
but I actually really do need to hear it. Because it really is true. And it's really the only way to make sense out of the disastrous existence we are sometimes eking out. But maybe you could just put it in your own words. <laughs> maybe you can find another passage. Maybe you can encourage me. Just remember to weep with those who weep, you know, and just... <laughs> I do need to be reminded. You need to be reminded. We need reminders that we are not left without an answer. We have the promises of God Almighty who loved us and gave himself up for us. And the injustices in the world will be resolved. We know they will be. Romans 8 is more beautiful in my life than it's ever been before. And I, I rush to Romans 8. It provides the answer to these questions. It gives the real answer to these faux answers. There is an interpretation of this. Well, maybe we'll say more about that later as we go, but let, let's leave that behind for now. And uh, Non-existence is not the answer. It's understanding God who loves us and even works in our lives through difficult things and circumstances to conform us into the image of His Son. Let's move now to the next answer that doesn't really deliver, and that's work, number five. So it was three, I think, and now it's number five, work. So he concluded in verse 22 that it seems to be the best thing to do because we really don't know what's after life, so we might as well just work. That makes sense, he says in verse 22. Now chapter 4, verse 4. Then I saw that, to that all toil, all work, and, and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. I was thinking maybe this is the best thing to give my life to because I don't know how life is going to end, so I might as well throw myself into my work. And now my conclusion is, you know, I've been watching. I'm an observer. I'm the wisest man in the land. Royalty comes to talk to me from other continents. And my wise evaluation as Solomon is, you know why people work so hard? It's not just to keep up with the Joneses. Sorry, Joneses, we're here, but you know how the saying goes. <laughs> it's not just to keep up with the Joneses, it's to outdo the Joneses. There's this self-driven, I've got to achieve so I can have, no, so I can have more. So I can be on top. He's saying, a lot of what I see is that. So now I'm back to saying, now is that really the worthy thing that I should throw my life into? I've, I've seen people who throw their lives into it. I've seen the disastrous effects. It doesn't deliver. They, they, by the way, the ultimate nemesis for Solomon is going to be death. They die too. And he says the answer is no because he says it's vanity. It's striving after wind. That, that's a waste. And by the way, we, we could take time, we're not doing it right now, to say... From a Christian worldview, I keep holding up this big lens. Can, does my eye look really big on the other side? Because <laughs> you're looking at it backwards? No. That would be kind of cool, though. Uh, I need a little comic relief. <laughs> no idea what I was going to say. but <laughs> We could talk about the value of work. We could talk about the value of Christians doing everything for the glory of God and we need to work as unto the Lord. And it's because, again, we have the lens through which we can see things and now we do everything we do for the glory of Christ and it makes a lot more sense. But, but he's, a, he's pretending, if you will, he doesn't know anything about any of that stuff to make the point that if you don't have a true knowledge of God, work is fatal. And I really think the argument ends there. In my opinion, I think verse 4 is all we need. And then kind of a strange thing happens, at least from my 21st century Westerner eyes, it's strange. Verses 5 to 12 is where I think he goes off on a sermonic tangent. Okay? Solomon is a sage. He's the wise man. He, he knows a lot, and, and we, we know he knows a lot. And it seems to me, in my opinion, that from verses 5 to 12, he just gives us like Proverbs. He gives us truisms about work and relationships. And I, I, that's why I think if you remember the forest, the overall bent of Ecclesiastes is negative. But you've got these positive teaching times. 
maybe he's doing it for credibility to say, I know a thing or two about work and I'm very wise when it comes to work. I'm still going to throw the whole thing under the bus when it comes to ultimate significance. But nevertheless, what happens in these next verses are, 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 are like proverbs. They're like true statements that even an unbeliever could come up with through observation. Verse 5 says, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. And you go, ugh. Grotesque image. Pretty straightforward, though, when you stop and think about it. The fool, when it comes to, like in Proverbs, the fool is lazy. The fool folds his hands to go to sleep, like Proverbs chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. And then they have nothing. Any stores that they have are gone. They eat their own flesh. They destroy themselves. Laziness. Fools are lazy. Lazy people are fools. That seems to be the point of verse 5. That's just a truism. Verse 6, conversely, better is a handful of quietness or rest than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. So you go the opposite direction. You're, you're not lazy. You work all the time and you really go after it with both hands. And he goes, that's not very smart either. You know what's better? is some rest and some work. That's better. Handful of quietness. Verse 7, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other. In the context of work, it seems to be now that we've got this man or this woman who has no other. They have no other relationships because they're so into work. Either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks. He just keeps going after more and more and more. So he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. That worker person that's so consumed with their work that they lost any relationships that they have. They really have no time for anyone else. This is who they are. This is their identity. This is where they find meaning. Work is not the answer. He says that's vanity. It's futility. You're so foolish and caught up in this, you don't even stop to ask yourself the question, who am I doing this for? He's a wise guy. A wise man. It's an unhappy business. Now, that was one tangent, and I think one tangent begets another tangent. This guy's deaf, and there's a reason why they call him the preacher. Um, <laughs> work is not where it's at, which leads us to talk about relationships and work. And now he's going to talk about relationships, relationships in general and the, the, the benefits of relationships. And so he does that in verses 9 to 12. Two are better than one. So while we're on the topic, let me talk to you about relationships. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Think again, Middle East, ancient culture, nighttime. Verse 12, and though a man might prevail against one who was alone, who will withstand him? A threefold cord is not quickly broken. These are just truisms, maxims, things we could say, you know, that's true. Strength in numbers, don't go alone, go in a group. I mean, these are just wise things to say. In my opinion, we could start getting confused about the whole book and what's happening here if we don't remember big picture. I think he's on a tangent. He happened to be talking about the subject, and so he says, oh, let me give you some wise things. Unbelievers even know this stuff. And then lastly, it's not work. Work isn't the answer. Are we on number six? Did I skip one? Okay. Number six, power. Power or status. Verse 13 says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. That sounds just like it just came from Proverbs. It's a truism. What an insightful statement uh, he makes there. But that's not his end game. Keep reading. He, he wants to take us somewhere. So, so wisdom is not where it's at. In fact, he's, he teaches in Ecclesiastes, wisdom is ultimately not the answer. Verse 14 says, For he went from prison to the throne... 
though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. So th- this guy was a down and outer and he really became someone. And in the context, it seems because he was wise. Wisdom got him somewhere. Verse 15, I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who wants to stand in the king's place. Wow! He came up from nowhere. He was a nothing. He became something to the point where masses of people are following him. He has power. He has clout. He has status. Wisdom got him there. Then it says in verse 16, there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Wow! He's so wise. He got all this power. And and now all of a sudden you might be tempted to conclude, therefore, the moral of the story is wisdom is where it's at because it'll lead to power and that's significant. And this guy obviously is the significant guy in the story, not the king who wouldn't learn anything anymore. Boys and girls, moral of the story is be wise. But then there's that word, yet. Verse 16 says, yet. Those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. He too will be forgotten. He too dies, ultimate nemesis. That was almost tricky what he did there. It's as if he got us all set up and then took the rug and went. Because we have such a, an attraction for wisdom and power and status. And he goes, eh, I don't think so. Whoop. Donk. Vanity. A vanity of vanities. Meaninglessness of meaninglessness. I gave you answers, and they're not really answers. Now let's go to John chapter 8. I love John 8. I love it that we're going to John 8. I love it that we're leaving Ecclesiastes. (laughs) Now the answer in Ecclesiastes is a true knowledge of God. What sets you free and what helps you to make sense of the world in which you live is a true knowledge of God. And we're going to get there in chapter 12. But for now, let's see true knowledge of God fleshed out in the ultimate true knowledge of God in Jesus. And it's raining. How fitting. I'm so happy that it wasn't sunny this morning for Ecclesiastes 3 and 4. It just wouldn't be very fitting. But now is when the sun needs to break out for, for chapter 8. This is not right. It's not working out as I planned. But anyway, look at three verses in John chapter 8. John 8, 31, 32, and 36. And this is a breath of fresh air. This causes us to love Christ out of the darkness into the light. John eight thirty one. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, I want you to really focus in on that. That's another way of saying revelation, which is what we've been looking for to find answers. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So Jesus is talking about his word, his speech, his revelation. And it's hopeful. Keep reading. Here's why it's hopeful. Verse 32. And you will know the truth. Oh, synonym for word. Synonym for revelation. You will know the truth. You will know my word. You will know the truth. And the truth, my truth, my word, my revelation will set you free. And you go, yes. We're in bondage. We're on the treadmill. We're in the darkness. It's total confusion. It's mirrors. It's smoke. It's confusion. It's headache. It's up and down. I don't know what I'm doing. I can't make sense out of life. Dysfunctional, dysfunctional, dysfunctional. And Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free from all of the bondage. And you say, I love Jesus. I have the lens through which I can see things. And I can see Jesus through the lens. The giver of the lens. And I'm free. And then he says in another great text, verse 36, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This great way to see things. You will not have temporary, you will not have partial, you will not have pseudo freedom 
you will have freedom indeed, and the very way to be freed is to have the truth. I want to say to you, if you want to be freed from the muck and the mire, vanity of vanities, and it's the haunting refrain in your life, you've got to have freedom. And the only freedom you're going to have is not in your work and not in, in non-existence and not in death and not in any of these things. The only freedom you're really going to have that's freedom indeed is freedom in Christ. And then, then everything makes sense. It doesn't take the pain away in the here and now, but you understand the pain in the here and now with a view toward the future. Right? And not only can you be set free, let me, let me preach at you a little bit. I felt like he was preaching. Well, he's a preacher, honey. Well, let me, let me exhort you a little bit in a good Christian way. If you have the truth and you have experienced freedom, be, be a freedom agent. You, you, you for sure and you know this, you live in a world where people are so confused it's not even funny. Because we ourselves are oftentimes confused and it's not funny. We know the answer, and we have to keep being reminded of the answer. But you live in a world where it's like total different zip code. They don't even know the questions to ask. And you can be a great ambassador by giving the truth that sets people free. One story about that, just to encourage you. Because you can do the same thing. I want more of these opportunities, but very recently, very recently, someone said to me something about death and life, and uh, one conversation leads to another conversation. They said, I can't figure out why people want to live so long. This is how it got started. Why do people want to live to be 100 years old? I don't get it. So I'm thinking, what am I going to say? I said, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I said, but there is something built in us, no doubt, that wants to live. Because, I mean, we know that death isn't natural. And this person looked at me like I just denied the reality of gravity. Okay? When I said death isn't natural, they looked at me like I was, you know, on drugs. Try it. Not the drugs, but the statement. (laughs) We know death isn't natural. This is a person that's gone to church for 70-some years where they're not going to hear the gospel. We know death isn't natural, so I guess it makes sense. There's something in us that wants to live. We could talk about whether or not we should try to live too long or whatever, but, but death isn't natural. What? And they started giving me science talk. Well, we know our bodies are broken down and they're going to fail eventually. And what are you talking about? The trees outside, they said, they're going to die. Oh, I said, I'm totally with you. But it's not natural. One of those kind of looks. Because we know where death comes from. Because when God created the world, he said, it's good. But if you rebel against me, there will be death. And with its suffering and pain and confusion and turmoil. The reason there is death and suffering in this world is because of human rebellion against God. Now, you and I know this is like Christianity 101, basic Christian worldview. But we forget it. And people around us forget it. Or people around us have no concept whatsoever. Operating from a worldview that says death is natural. In fact, death is a way to progress. And now the person, I mean, it was just teeing up the little ball. Now the person was ready for me to talk about Jesus. I said, and isn't it amazing then to think that Jesus comes to deal with the sin problem, which means he's coming to deal with the death problem, which means he's coming to deal with the suffering and turmoil problem. We can make sense out of this world. And now we got into a further conversation because the person was here on Easter so I could follow up on some things. But then I could get more complicated, which you don't need to do, and say the first Adam led the human race into sin. Jesus in 1 Corinthians is called the last Adam. He's going to lead the human race out. The solution is in him. I bring it up to you because you're living in the same world I'm living in. 
and even professing Christians think that death is natural. We know it's not. And when we go down that road, we can start talking about life in Christ through the death and life and resurrection of Christ. And now all of a sudden, here's where I wanted to go. You have answers. You, to- you have the answer. Love your neighbor by telling them the answer. Now, you might have to set them up with the problem first because they don't even know the question. <laughs> so be long-suffering and kind and help them down the road of even knowing what the question is so that you can give them the truth and the truth can set them free so they're not locked into the dark world of Ecclesiastes. It is a rush. It is awesome. It is a privilege. And we're ambassadors who should find fulfillment in doing this. My encouragement to you, my literal prayer is going to be that you would talk to someone about the unnatural nature of death, even this week. And people will have apoplexy and think you go to a really weird cult church or something strange. The person I was talking to actually thought I was like some kind of doing Christian science or something and denying the reality of death. I'm not saying people don't die. I'm saying it's not natural. Anyway, I'm going to pray for you right now. It's going to mess with you. Father, thank you for our time in Ecclesiastes. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who sets us free because of his work on our behalf and because of the full revelation of God in him that we can know the truth and be freed from the bondage of turmoil and sin and confusion and I pray for my dear brothers and sisters in Christ who are here this morning that you would give them opportunities and you would give them opportunities to talk about Christ, perhaps even through talking about the unnaturalness of death and suffering so that they can talk about the supernatural solution to death and suffering in Christ Jesus the Lord and that you would give us these kinds of natural opportunities where we can open our mouths and speak and that we would know that we've been set free by the truth, and so we can speak the truth to others lovingly and compassionately, so that perhaps by your grace, you, this loving God, will set others free as well. In Jesus' name, amen.